It's your Wednesday, Daily Delivery. I'm Michael Rand. Happy to be back for another day. Good show coming up. Um, Jim Suhan will join me here in a little while from the Masters down in Augusta. It's a two-guest day. Um, Sarah McClellan from the Star Tribune also joins me here in just a little bit to talk wild hockey. A bunch of good stuff coming down the stretch for them. Just five games left in the Wilds regular season playoff position on the line. Still a question of who might be the goalie when they open the playoffs. So that's not a question in my mind that it should be Philippe Gustafsson, but we'll see where they end up with that. Question of when when Kirill Kaprizov will come back. He's been skating now with the team for a couple days, so we'll see if we get an update on him soon. Um, the offense is, you know, the the offense the team has continued to to hum along just fine in his absence, and they are right in position to perhaps win the Central Division. So lots of good storylines with the Wild that Sarah helped me break down on this show. Um, we got to get to a, a nice. I, I like Iowa basketball, <clears throat> uh, women's basketball. Um, put a nice kind of douse of water on on whatever simmering controversy was left over from. Um, Sunday's title game, and there shouldn't have been a controversy anyway. But Caitlin Clark did a great job of answering questions on SportsCenter the other day, just kind of putting any lingering feelings to rest um, and saying all the right things in this case. So appreciated that. First, though, what did I miss? Let's talk Wolves and Twins just for a few minutes here. Wolves beat the Nets, of course they did. They they lose to a team that's clearly tanking, the Blazers. They lose to the Blazers. At home on Sunday, just two days ago, um, two days before they played the Nets, and they go play the Nets, and you know Nets are Nets are trying to lock up their own top six spot. They're trying to you know get some momentum going into the playoffs. They'd won I think three in a row. They're you know they're at home, so of course what happens? The Wolves go there and win that game. They win it with some clutch plays down the stretch. Some big free throws from Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards in the final minute of that game, and uh, and they, and they get it done. And it's just you know some of the same problems are still there for this team. That the offense ever since Carl Anthony Towns has come back has been pretty uh, disjointed. Uh, I, I'm trying not to use the word clunky because I think that word has gotten a little bit overused when it comes to this team. But it's been disjointed. They just the, the ball stops, doesn't work all that well but when you get to end a game sometimes it's okay because you're getting into more of those isolation sets sometimes and it worked in this game um cat and ant both getting to the line getting some big buckets uh from you know getting getting to the line and getting those big points at the end of the game to carry them over the nets and then you know that one of course puts them back in position where i believe they've clinched at least a spot in the play-in and can finish no worse than ninth if I'm doing my math correct. They can finish no worse than ninth. So if they, if they finish ninth, they would host that 9-10 play-in game. But they still have a decent chance now of getting into the top eight of, you know, being into that kind of scenario where you can, you know, you get two cracks at it. And they still have an outside chance of finishing sixth or even fifth at this point. So... We'll we'll see, but the, it's all going to come down, I think, to that that Pelicans game, the final game of the year. First, they got to take care of business against San Antonio on Saturday, which they've been terrible at this year. They've they've lost to some of those bad teams uh, quite regularly this year. I've made that point the, the other day. They're four and seven against the four very worst teams in the NBA this year. But they've got a chance with two winnable games: the the one at San Antonio on Saturday, and then home against New Orleans the day after that. Um, just, you know. 
opportunity to finish 42 and 40, an opportunity to improve their seed. They've got a lot of these tiebreakers, so maybe, just maybe. But I think Chris Finch summed it up perfectly uh, talking about this game. It was, in a, it was in Chris Hines' game story. He said, every win right now feels like two. Every loss feels like three. It's just crazy. But we had a real tough and bad loss through the night. We've been able to kind of forget about those things and move on and not have it snowball on us. And that's true. They have been able to do that by and large this season. If there is one mark of this team that you can say has trended positive for almost the whole year, it is resilience. They have been a resilient team, and that carried over into their game against Brooklyn on Tuesday night. Now, the Twins lost finally. one nothing to the Marlins. Kenta Maeda looked good. Taken out in the sixth inning. Seems like he's fine coming back from that Tommy John surgery. But uh, they just ran into a buzzsaw with uh, with the Marlins pitching. And one hour and 57 minutes for this game. I don't think a single Twins game this year has been more than two hours and 35 minutes. But that one, the piece de resistance of the new rules. One hour, 57 minutes. You could make a Hollywood blockbuster movie that took less time than that. And I love it. Again, this is not a complaint. This is I, I love every bit of this improved pace of play of these shorter game times. Um, the Twins were bound to lose one. They're 4-1 and one now. We'll see if they can win today before coming home. And by the way, that Twins home opener moved to Friday, if you hadn't heard that. I hope this isn't the first time you're hearing that, but cooler temperatures on Thursday, much nicer on Friday, and the weekend looks great. Uh, finally getting into the 60s pretty soon. Even seeing some 70s next week, so starting to feel like baseball weather, starting to feel like maybe it is time to get this thing going at Target Field. One more in Miami before that, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll see. Don't blink. These games are going fast, and I am definitely here for that. It's great to be joined right now from Augusta on Wednesday morning, Jim Suhan, um, out at the Masters. Jim, you've been there. How many times have you been out at the Masters now? I, I'll have to look it up. I think this is my 14th or 15th time. Wow. Uh, started coming here in 2005, got to watch Tiger's big comeback victory uh, on s- Sunday with a delayed third round playing Sunday morning. Uh, you know, it, one of the many times I got to see Tiger win a major in person. And, uh, you know, had a, I've missed a few years here and there, but yeah. we've kind of gotten back to me coming here every year. And it's, I mean, it's just, it, it's everything, everything you've heard about it is true, but it's different when you're actually here. It's just, I, I, this place is, you know, comparing what you see on TV to what you see when you're here, it's a vast piece of property. It's not just, you know, the golf course you can walk. If you, if you take a wrong turn around here, you will walk into something that looks like an arboretum or, a, <laughs> you know, it's it just, it's it just, it is a stunning piece of property right now. I'm in the media center looking out over the, the driving range, the midst of the driving range, which is another place they've upgraded, you know, exponentially in the last 10 years uh so it is quite an experience it does not get old coming here i'll say that i would imagine it doesn't although some things are new and you know one of the biggest storylines this year it seems jim is this kind of budding rivalry um antagonism i don't know how would you phrase it between the, the the guys on the pga tour that have stayed there and the guys on the live golf tour who are, you know, more or less usually separated by, you know, continents by oceans sometimes, but now are on uh, in the same place preparing to play and have not been shy about, you know, taking shots at each other so far this week. It is a rivalry and it is antagonistic. What's weird is that a lot of these guys have talked a really big game about, you know, uh, the, about, you know, I mean, a lot of live golfers that complain about the PGA tours, financial structure and management structure and 
use that as an excuse for why they went to live. They didn't go to live because of that. They went to live because they got, it's easier. They get guaranteed money. They get no cuts. They play three-day tournaments. Uh, it's, it's, it's basically if LeBron James had decided to play for the Harlem Globetrotters instead of, you know, instead of winning NBA championships, sure. if he, if he, if he could get paid $50 million a year to play for the Globetrotters and he didn't have to compete. Uh, so the live golfers really have no leg to stand on. Some of the PGA people have hammered them on whether it's because of they're joining a, you know, the Saudi Arabian backed, uh, tour that is trying to sports wash right. uh, Saudi Arabia's human rights violations. But w- what you really get a sense of here in person is while you while me and, and people who think like me think that's the biggest part of the story that they let they you know left the pj tour to join the saudi backed uh venture uh when you, you talk to them here it's really more uh annoyance that they would leave the pga tour take easy money and damage sure. the tour in doing so that's endless and, and here's the thing almost all these people live in jupiter florida and play practice rounds together and their wives are friends. Uh, you know, it's like Kepka and Rory, you know, Kepka is right. one of the big gets for live golf. Rory McIlroy is one of the most outspoken leaders of the PGA tour. And who has bashed live golfers. And guess what? They're friends. And they played a practice round together yesterday. And, and, you know, I wrote about it today. I mean, Rory McIlroy's showing pictures of his kid on his phone to Brooks and they're laughing through the round. So, so the rivalry is both real and on a personal level, greatly overstated because they're all still friends and they're all golfers they're not like professional wrestlers they're not going to punch right. each other as much as the live golf turn uh, live golf tournament see our uh, tour seems like a, a heel turn it is not professional wrestling you are correct uh but it's, it's fascinating it's, it creates a different flavor to golf and we you know this isn't brand new it, it's been going for a little while here but it does feel like golf never used to have much of that kind of I don't know antagonism, and now it, it now it just doesn't. It, it it is interesting to to see um, another big storyline. Obviously, Jim Tiger Woods. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what he's he's got, but whenever he's somewhere, he he's going to be a center of attention. Well, you know, and I covered him uh, here last year, and and he he just can't. And this is going to sound weird to people who don't get golf or don't play golf or haven't played competitive golf. He can play golf. He can hit the ball really well. His hands are great. His short game's great. He thinks better than any. He's the best thinker out here. He just his legs just don't stand up to walking one of the hilliest of courses that PGA players ever play. You know, uh, this is not a triathlon, but there is a certain amount of fatigue. There's a certain amount of leg fitness. You know, steep inclines, and that's something that doesn't really come across on TV as just as when you're here. If you ever play golf, if you're tired, you're probably not going to putt as well. It seems counterintuitive, but that's actually true. Uh, there's just no way for him to play at his best four rounds. Um, so his ultimate goal here is actually just just kind of hang in there and make the cut. Um, Jim, final thoughts, and we'll check in with you hopefully um, Thursday and Friday as well. But any any kind of anything else you are watching for as you know we're going to last last day before the, the real show begins. It's an interesting dynamic. Uh, you know, Tom Hoagie's our only real kind of local angle, so I keep yep. up with Tom when I can. Scheffler, Rahm, and McElroy are the big three in golf right now. Um, and Scheffler and any of them could get hot and win this thing. Any of them get hot and dominate the season. Uh, so that dynamic's interesting. And everybody else kind of on the outside. And listen, 
you know, obviously long shots can win. Uh, people who aren't in the top three can win. But it's like there's separation between the big three and everybody else. But the question is, you know, does Rory have the mental capacity to win here after all of the scar tissues built up here? Right. Can Scheffler become only the fourth player to ever win back-to-back Masters? That just never happens. And you know, Rom, he's an guy and can he pull it together when he's not playing that well so even yeah. though there's a big three that feels separated from the rest of the pack those not i don't know it would be wise to bet on any of those three individuals yeah no it sounds good it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating tournament it always is um just different subplots every year different people coming in hot different people you know at the top of their game and it sounds like it's no different this year jim well i hope you enjoy it hope we get a chance to catch up again thursday and friday and until then uh, go go get him and we'll, we'll talk to you soon Sounds good. Thanks, Michael. Good stuff from Jim Suhan. Appreciate him hopping on with me from Augusta this morning. Um, Good insights from him, of course. Just a fascinating tournament. Fascinating watching these guys from the two tours coming together. And uh, we'll see how that rivalry spills out onto the golf course in uh, over the over the course of the next four days. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake. With 24-7 gaming, the good times never have to end. And you can satisfy your cravings at our restaurants and bars. Or relax in one of our luxurious hotel rooms. Those that play together, stay together. And don't forget to join Club M so you can spark new memories and bask in the rewards along the way. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. It's a hockey time of year. We talked to Randy Johnson on Tuesday show, getting ready for the Frozen Four. Um, Sarah McClellan joins me now. Maybe, just maybe, getting ready for a significant wild playoff run. We don't really know at this point, Sarah, but what we do know is they are for sure in the playoffs and now still jockeying for position in what will be a very important last five games starting Thursday in Pittsburgh. Sarah, for as well as they've played in this last you know 20 to 25 game stretch, a lot still on the line here in these final few games. Yeah, you think about this team winning 16 games since, you know, basically mid-February, and what do they have to show for it? They were atop the division for a little stretch there, but they're still very much in this tight race. And, yes, they've clinched a playoff spot, but there really is no clarity on where they'll finish, who they could face in the first round. So as much as they've been on, you know, a tremendous run, you know, over this last month plus, month and a half, was their competition. Everyone yeah. seems to be winning. Everyone seems to be winning at the same time. I think that's why last week's win at Colorado was so crucial, was that was finally a head-to-head opportunity to pry points away from a team that you're battling with in the standings. And a very statement win by the Wild, obviously, in that game against the reigning Stanley Cup champions. But these last five games are are still very significant in deciding seeding. Obviously, you know, to get home ice adva- advantage, you know, if you win the division and then obviously same with the second seed and that matchup versus the third seed. So finishing top two, you know, still has, I think, a very big, um, you know, advantage the rest of the way, even though, like you said, you look at the caliber of competition, Dallas, Colorado, those, you know, those three at the top of the division, uh, it's it's going to be tough regardless, but I think obviously home ice advantage, um, you know, could could be a factor as well. And then obviously too, though, if you win the division to avoid those two teams yes. and play a wild card seed, 
you know, potentially like a Seattle, which we just saw recently a very, you know, convincing win by the wild uh, against Seattle, a lot of scenarios at play, but obviously I think getting as many points as possible certainly should set this team up uh, well going into the playoffs. Yeah. And that brings up an interesting question about Kirill Kaprizov that I'll maybe circle back on in a little while here, but like you said, the next five will be kind of this balance of, of really kind of going for it and understanding that there's a pretty big difference between finishing first and finishing third. Like they've already clinched a playoff spot. They're going to be in a good spot no matter what. They probably feel pretty good about their game overall, but there's not all playoff opponents are created equal and home ice is big, but also if you look at who they've played and who they've played well, like you said, Seattle, they've played them pretty well. Colorado, they were there one and two against Colorado. That that one being you know just the other day, two and two against Dallas. Like they they've they, they've played them relatively even, but you get into a series with one of those teams if you wind up as the two or the three in particular, like you're going to be going kind of uphill into that first round because you know this West is fairly top heavy. I wouldn't say there's any weak team that's going to make the field, but there's certainly preferences if you look at how they've played this year. Kind of a mixed bag in season in terms of the results against those teams, but the playoffs can just be completely different and that can be irrelevant what's happened in the past. I think obviously you have to take into account that Colorado are the the defending Stanley Cup champion. The fact that they have that experience, that pedigree, they've been there, the muscle memory will probably kick in. That looks like a dangerous, obviously, type of situation. As for Dallas, you know, I think what's intriguing about that is this kind of turnaround for the while really started, you know, with a win against Dallas back in February. So they haven't really faced them since they've really gone on this tear and really started to settle into their style of play in this second half of the season, this late season push. But again, look what Dallas did last postseason. Jake Ottinger, a goalie, can just take over a series, get on a run, and essentially basically be a brick wall in the net. Like, you know, you run that risk of of having, you know, a player like that who's done it before – Uh, just last year, become a complete X factor in a series. So some intriguing scenarios, but, you know, I think home ice is big, like you said, especially how the Wild have played on home ice um, practically since mid-November. One of the top teams in the league in in defending, you know, their home ice. Uh, But, you know, I think, too, it should help them that they do have some recent, you know, scenarios and games to look back to where they did play well against the Avalanche. They, you know, they did win against the Stars. Um, so maybe that's helpful. But again, I think playoffs are just, they're different. You know, they're they're not the same urgency and intensity. It's tough to, to predict. But having said that, in winning so much the last, you know, month and a half, the Wild have pretty much already settled into a playoff style game. It seems like they've been playing that type of, uh, of game, you know, for a long time now, they look like they have a knack for it. So in that sense, maybe the opponent becomes irrelevant. I mean, we'll see all, all three of these teams have been playing well the second half of the season, but the wild, when they've really been in their groove, it looks like they've, they've already been in the playoffs. Yeah, And given that, and you know, maybe this is kind of more of a philosophical or even an eye test question, but is this a team that looks like it, can compete better in the playoffs. Not that they didn't compete the last two years. I mean, those were, you know, competitive series, but they lost to Vegas in seven. They lose to the Blues in six. And both of those were right there to be taken and kind of pivoted at certain, you know, crucial moments. 
and hockey's funny. A bounce, a bounce here, a bounce there can decide a whole series. But just looking at looking at it on balance, is this a wild team that seems more ready to, you know, potentially go on a playoff run? So, because I do think, like I said, the style of play is suited for the postseason. And you, know, you you can look even just as recent as last season, you know, the most success, successful season in franchise history, the most goals, the most points. And it was entertaining and um, it was fast paced, up tempo hockey. Uh, but come playoff time, obviously, the team struggled and it's a different game in the playoffs, how they were winning in the regular season. He's come from behind wins, pulling the goalie, scoring late, getting it to overtime and maybe winning in a shootout. That just doesn't apply in the playoffs. It's so much more of a challenge to come from behind and get that late goal. Teams just lock it down and it's just more of a grind. So I think in that sense, like I said, the Wild have been kind of playing that hockey for a while now. I think that's really been their bread and butter this season. It's a 2-1, 3-2 game. Uh, tight checking, not a lot of space out there, um, really protecting their own zone and just being opportunistic on offense. Yes, they, they're going to look to score. It's not like they're not trying to, but being opportunistic, taking advantage when the chance is there, but still not compromising their own end. And so it looks like that should bode well come the playoffs because it's just so tight. They're used to that. They're used to these pressure situations they're pretty clutch in one goal games. Uh, they don't usually melt down in the third period and blow leads. We, we kind of saw that, obviously, a, a rare occurrence Monday with them giving up a goal with 35 seconds left. Um, but to Vegas and, you know, them tying it and then winning ultimately in a shootout. But that hasn't happened very much this season. And right. Vegas is a quality team. Vegas yes. is a top of the Western Conference. So kind of look at the, at, at the circumstances. But this just does seem to be a team that's been playing playoff hockey for a while now is maybe built for, you know, a postseason run because they've already kind of been doing it for a few months now. Well, and they've had to do it for almost a month without their best player, Kirill Kaprizov, who was injured in that Winnipeg game several, you know, several weeks ago already. Now he skated the other day and it sounds like it was more than just a, a casual skate through the pond. They, they put him through a pretty good, you know, it sounded like what a thirty-minute workout, something like that. So it it sounds like things are progressing, but at at this point, like there's probably two schools of thought. One is they're already in the playoffs. Do you give him the maximum amount of rest until you get there? Versus as soon as he's ready, let's go because these games are important and you need all your best players. And if you're going to try to secure the kind of position that might put you in a spot to go on a playoff run. You need wins at the end of the year, not just getting ready for the playoffs. So how do you imagine they're approaching it? And when, what, do, what do we know about kind of what the next steps might be for him? Yeah, I think we're right around that four week mark, which, you know, it said at the time was expected to be three to four weeks. So he started skating. Uh, he's back on the ice. I think the next step is seeing when can he rejoin the group? When can he get into a practice setting? We've kind of already seen this process play out a little bit with Gustav Nyquist, who obviously was acquired before the trade deadline, but came over with a shoulder injury. He's now graduated to the point where he's practicing and skating with the team. So I, I know for with him, the hope is that he can get in the game before, you know, at least 
the playoffs start um, to get back in action. But so that's kind of, I think, the timeline that we're looking, the, the, the steps, the progression with Kaprizov. But you're right. I think ultimately it is a question of, is it worth it to get him in a game, to get him back up to the speed of play, um, you know, just into that situation, reunite with Matt Zuccarello on a line? Um, is that more important? important than just maximizing the time off and just making sure that he feels 100% ready for game one. I think that's ultimately the the debate that we're going to see play out over these next five games. They have some time the rest of this week, next week. So there is a little bit, I think, of a cushion there for them to try to figure out what's best for him. You know, I think for a lot of players, you know, maybe you could really argue, okay, it's best to get a game in. It's best to get back to that pace of play. But many players aren't Kirill Kaprizov. If there's anyone that you could probably say, okay, who could just jump right in and acclimate? I think, you know, a lot could be said that he would be that type of player, that caliber of player who could adjust. Um, But we'll see. I I really think that'll be an interesting question to watch, see how the Wild handle that and see how they handle everyone. Um, Like I said, Nyquist is another one to watch. You know, they've clinched. But, you know, first place is still up for grabs. You know, do they try to rest some of their players? Do they try to, you know, just keep rolling out their best lineup um, and keep everybody engaged? You know, it, it's it's probably a difficult situation to be in because we've laid out the reasons why first place in the division makes a lot of sense. But ultimately, you know, the goal is that Stanley Cup and being ready for the playoffs. So does it make sense to give someone a night off? I, I think those that's, again, another reason why these five games will be really interesting to watch and surely won't lack any significance for the Wild. Yeah, and I imagine some of it too maybe has to do with the the nature of the injury. Is there a risk of re-injury, re-aggravation if you push or go back? You know, I don't think they, they would not put Caprice back before he's ready, but, you know, there, there's, different, there's different timelines if you want to be sure – and again, we, we the the nature of NHL injuries, we just know it's a lower body injury. But I think there's a difference between like a soft tissue injury, like a hamstring, or you know something else that's wrong with a ligament versus like someone breaks a breaks a bone or something. You kind of know like once a bone is healed and you're back on the ice, you're not going to re-break the bone or something like that. It, it, there's so there's a difference in the nature of the injury. I imagine that could factor into some of that decision as well. But part of it probably mitigated by the fact that. Not like they haven't needed him, but man, Matt Boldy has scored a lot in his absence, has really taken his game to another level. Looks like the pairing with Marcus Johansson has really let his game you know, blossom even a little bit more. Um, what can you say, A, about Boldy and B, about some of the what you know what Bill Guerin did add at the deadline that's given him a little bit more depth of scoring, even with Kaprizov out? Yeah, the timing of this surge by Boldy obviously has certainly, you know, helped weather and kind of keep the offense afloat amid Kaprizov's absence, weather that absence because, you know, you lose him, you know, goals I think around that time were still kind of tough to come by, you know, it was maybe one or two, and then all of a sudden – Boldy takes over, you know, 13 goals in his last 12 games. Wow. And a lot of the two, to your point, is since he's really started to settle in with Marcus Johansson on a line, also with Joel Eriksson X. So it, it's not just Kaprizov's exit, but I think just the product, too, of them developing chemistry, getting more familiar with each other. Um, and I think with, with Johansson, I, I think that's a really good point, what his arrival has done for Boldy, B. 
because um, he brings another playmaking element to the line, um, the way that he can pass the puck. But I think his speed and the way that he skates can really kind of jar defensemen. Um, you know, I, I think it can really open up space. And I think that's why this line has been able to create so much offensively is they're finding holes, they're finding pockets in blue lines and, and in the offensive zone. And we've seen Boldy just ex exploit them with his shot. Um, obviously, we've seen, you know, an uptick in his windups and, and getting more pucks off his stick. But I think, too, the authority with which he's shooting, um, you, you look sometimes and, and in coaching, Anderson has said it looks like he's trying to throw the puck through the net. And I think that just speaks to the confidence that it looks like he has right now being on this run. And again, could the timing be better? You know, you're a few weeks before the playoffs um, to have now a 30 goal scorer on your lineup in just his second year in the NHL. I think this is really going to bring much more depth and balance to the wild lineup. You know, before this, maybe you could say, okay, it'd be easy to just focus on the Capri soft line and just shut down that line with Ryan Hartman and Matt Zuccarello. But now clearly you can't. This is right now the Wild's best line. Um, they also have that defensive presence, too, because of Erickson Eck. You know, they're going to track back in their zone. You know, they're going to be uh, able to to have that effect on the opposition's top players as well. So I think this line could really be a factor come playoff time because, like I said, I think they obviously have that chemistry going right now to deliver offensively. Uh, but with Erickson Eck there, obviously they can still be a factor factor in their own end too and I think having that two-way presence that's what the playoffs are all about keep the puck out of your net and score in the other one and this is a line that certainly looks like it can do it all right now with Boldy leading the way offensively speaking of keeping the puck out of the net maybe my final thought and question for you Sarah um, Gustafson and um, Flurry have been alternating games basically like you were saying for the last dozen games or so even before then, it was a pretty even split for most of the year. I mean, we know how they came into it with Flurry being the clear number one, and then Gustafson kind of played his way at least into a a timeshare. And it, honestly, if we're you know, if I'm just saying it, Gustafson's been the better goalie for the majority of this season. He has numbers that are among the league leaders. But we're talking about Flurry, a guy who's got Hall of Fame credentials, has three Stanley Cups. Um, you know, last year they made the decision to go with Flurry over Talbot when he got to the playoffs until that that final game. Um, is Dean just going to come out and say who it is, Sarah? I doubt he is. So, what, what are we thinking right now as as the playoffs get close and and what they might be thinking in terms of who who they would trust in net in game one? We'll see if these last five games provide any clues. Uh, you know, right now, like you said, they've been rotating for twelve straight games. So, you know, it's been a pretty even split, which it has for, for a chunk of the season now. But, you know, there is a back-to-back -back in that stretch, so obviously it looks like that would be a split as well. Uh, but does someone get two games in a row? I mean, maybe that's the first tell because you're right, you know, it, it's it's been a by-committee approach, and it's worked. Um, I, I think that's kind of the, the interesting factor is this isn't just, a, you know, a workload management situation where it's just trying to rotate to give somebody a night off and keep them healthy and fresh. They've both been playing well. Uh, you know, they both have been backstopping the wild, um, you know, to this second half run and both have been really responsible for that. So it, it's tough to just, you know, I think maybe identify now who might be the one based on their habits lately. You can look at 
the numbers. You can look at the stats. Obviously, Gustafson ranks among the best in the NHL. He doesn't have the workload, obviously, that other top netminders have. Right. Um, you know, so that's that's a little different. It, it's very much obviously like he's been in a split with Flurry. Um, but, you know, will they ultimately go with one? You know, I think that's a question, too, yeah. because they did last season. Obviously, they they continue to rotate Flurry and Cam Talbot until the end. And then Flurry was the starter for the first five games. Can you see a situation where they would rotate in the playoffs? Man. I don't know. That's that that would totally be unconventional. Um, you probably want one goalie to get in a groove. But having said that, is it not? you know, uncommon nowadays to need two goalies, to have two yeah. goalies help you out during your playoff push. Um, you know, it, it, it's an interesting debate. And I think right now, like I said, the way that both have been playing, there's obviously cases for both. And I think, again, it'll be interesting to see these next five games, if there are any clues, maybe even looking at the matchups and, you yeah. know, the topper of these opponents, um, you know, maybe that'll provide some insight, but you know, it's definitely a situation kind of familiar to last season, you know, where they were rotating both down the stretch. But again, both have been playing well. So, um, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting decision to see who ultimately, you know, takes that takes that spot. Because like you said, Flurry's the veteran, the future Hall of Famer. Gustafson is the newcomer. Um, not as much NHL experience, but numbers that put him, you know, near the top of the league. And Gustafson's personality doesn't seem to me one that would get intimidated by the moment necessarily. Like he's pretty even keel laid back. I know nobody exactly knows how someone's going to play when the pressure gets heightened in its playoffs, but his, he doesn't seem to be like someone who would be overcome by the moment or get out of his style necessarily. You know, I think you saw that too, just last week in that, in that game at Colorado, that was arguably the biggest game of the year. And, you know, he, was steady you know there was that goal um out of the penalty box a breakaway um but still you know a big push by Colorado in the third period and you know to only let in one goal um you know and to just really like I said backstop the team to a statement victory and for him again yeah you're right he looks steady he looked like he always does so you know based on what we've seen so far because he's had some of those games where a lot's at stake big opponent um, he doesn't, he hasn't looked like the moment has been too big for him. So I think that is back to his style though. Like you said, he's very calm, um, very steady in net. And I think that's just probably a, a byproduct of his training, his technique. That's really what steadies his game. So, um, we've already kind of seen a little bit of a track record for him being able to rise to that occasion and not be intimidated by the moment. I think the only way I could see them rotate is if they went with one guy in game one and he got yeah, he got beat for four or five goals and they just said, you know what, we're not going to ride this out as long as we did last year. Not that Fleury was the 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 culprit or the scapegoat last year, but I, th I think there was a school of thought that they could have turned to Talbot at a certain point last year, maybe sooner than the elimination game in, in game six. And maybe they would make a decision faster if if their goalie had one or even two you know, even subpar starts where they're like, hey, we've got another guy we feel confident in. But if someone's rolling, I think you got to stay with that goalie in the playoffs. You don't mess with someone who's on a roll. I think that's kind of a fascinating point is is 
when you look at this season, how much of it is a reaction to last season? Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, how the goaltending situation panned out in the playoffs, how much does that maybe influence what they do this season? I think if you think of, you know, just the season as a whole, I do feel a lot of this is a correction to what went wrong last season. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a team that, like I said, you know, had to come from behind and yeah, they scored a lot of goals, but they let in a lot of goals. And, and, the, and the special win. and the special teams were a mess last year. Yeah, like they, like they were not, a, that was not a playoff hockey style team at all last year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this season it's a 180, right? Yes. You know, this is a team that Power play is better. You know, special teams has been a focus, like you said, but this is a team that is very stingy defensively when they're at their best. And, you know, they may only score two or three goals, but sometimes that's enough. So it'll be interesting to see if if that applies to a situation like this with their lineup. How much do they read and react off of what happened last season? Because I do feel that playoff loss to the Blues has very much set a tone for this season and how this team has evolved. Obviously, some different personnel and you know every season is its own entity but I do think that has played a part in shaping the evolution of the wild and how they have felt that they probably need to adjust to be better and to get past a first round and to ultimately realize their potential with this lineup and with the players that they have I agree it's going to be very interesting to watch these last five games and the playoffs now that they've clinched a spot that happened on uh, Monday night in that game. Uh, Sarah McClellan, great stuff as always. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more as these games matter even more. Um, until then, appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Now, Sarah made a lot of good points, but the the one that I'm going to watch for sure is: Are they di- <clears throat> do they do anything different with the goalies in these last five games? Do they do they stagger them in a certain way that maybe tips their hand? Not necessarily for who's automatically going to start game one, but who they see maybe as their number one goalie right now. Do they give somebody, like she said, uh, you know, back-to-back games or you know, two starts in a row? Do they kind of alter the rotation to kind of give one goalie a, a more difficult matchup than others? I don't know. I, I, I did think it was interesting that, <clears throat> you know, of this recent three-game stretch where they had Colorado, Vegas, and Vegas, Gustafson did get two of those three. Now, it was part of that natural back-and-forth but Gustafson got two of those three, and those two that he got were the win over Colorado, the almost win over Vegas where they gave up the goal in the last minute, lost in the shootout, but he played very well in both those games. Not saying Flurry didn't play well in that game at Vegas, but um, you know, I, I think Gustafson showed himself in those games to be playoff-worthy, playoff-ready, so we'll see what decision they ultimately do make in net once we do get to the postseason. Let's finish with the cooler, Caitlin Clark of Iowa. Did a lot of great things for college women's basketball all throughout the NCAA tournament, all throughout this season and last season. Just a tremendous player. And she did another great thing on Tuesday, going on SportsCenter and basically dousing any embers of controversy, a controversy that never should have existed in the first place, if not for racism and sexism, by the way. Um, But dousing that controversy, uh, if you missed it in that Sunday game, Angel Reese from uh, LSU did the uh, did did Caitlin Clark's gesture? Did the you can't see me with her hands in front of her face showed the uh, showed the, her finger on a on on her uh, you know pretending to pretending to be putting on a ring like a championship ring, showing her that the, she's going to be winning a uh, winning the championship and not Clark. And uh, 
Clark goes on SportsCenter and says, I don't think Angel should be criticized at all. It, I, it, I'm, I'm just one that competes, and she competed. I think everybody knew there's going to be a little trash talk in the entire tournament. It's not just me and Angel. We're all competitive. We all show our emotions in a different way. Angel's a tremendous player. I have nothing but respect for her. I love her game. I'm a big fan of her and even the entire LSU team. They played an amazing game. Thank you, Caitlin Clark. Not that she needed to say that necessarily, but that was tremendous. Loved to hear that from her because you know what? Angel Reese was well within her rights. If this was a male, if, if this was a men's basketball game, I don't think we'd even be talking about trash talk. That happens all the time in the men's game. And I think the element of race was absolutely in play here. Angel Reese is black. Caitlin Clark is white. Um, I think that was absolutely in play with some of the initial reaction to this. And I love that Caitlin Clark came out and said, you know what? Angel Reese didn't do anything wrong. I, I don't. She shouldn't even have to apologize for it. But the fact that she did definitely added to added to my respect for her. And I'm glad that this maybe is not going to overshadow what was a tremendous championship game and a tremendous tournament overall. That will do it for today. Lavelle E. Neal expected to be on Thursday show. Talk twins, a bunch of other stuff. So I hope you stick around and enjoy that on Thursday. Probably a whole bunch of twins on Friday with Phil Miller. So. Hope you enjoy the rest of this week. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Just a couple more lousy days outside, then we're finally going to get to good, going to get to the good weather. I promise it's coming. Just be patient. It will get here sooner rather than later. That's for me. I'm Michael Rand. See you on Thursday.